Now please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. As you're turning there, there was an announcement. An announcement I forgot. You see all these awesome decorations, right? We've enjoyed them for a while, all right? And we're so thankful for Lynn heading that up and doing such a fantastic job. Are we not thankful? Yes, we are. It is encouraging. But unfortunately, we, it's scheduled to take them down tomorrow, all right? So I would encourage you, those who participated in putting them up and whatnot, to help us take them down as we prepare for the new season and new year. So that's happening 10 a.m. tomorrow. If you want to participate and help serve in that way, just talk to Lynn. Lynn, could you raise your hand? All right? And you can help serve in that way. All right. So Lynn, I did not forget. <laughs> well, I did, but then I saw it. All right, so we're in Nehemiah chapter 1. Please, turn, please stand for the reading of God's encouraging word. Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah, starting in verse 1, reads, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it came to pass... In the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant, his steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcast are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and your prayer to the prayer and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the king, I was the cupbearer to the king. This is the word of God, amen? amen? Amen, you may be seated. There are six sections 
to this passage. The first is the introduction to the speaker. The introduction to the speaker. Look at the first few words of verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, based on those first few words in that first line, it seems obvious that Nehemiah is the author of this book, but that is actually not the case. Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book, and they were both written by Ezra. This first line is Ezra, the author, saying, I'm about to quote Nehemiah. And Ezra is going to quote Nehemiah all the way to chapter 7. And then he is going to speak, and then he's going to re or restart quoting Nehemiah later on in the book. So Nehemiah is going to be the one speaking here, but the author of the book in its entirety is Ezra. Now before we move on from this line, I want you to notice an encouraging detail. The name Nehemiah means Yahweh comforts, Yahweh comforts. And that is exactly what this entire book is about. Soon we're going to see that God's people were in trouble, this great trouble and this great shame. And Nehemiah is going to go to God in prayer. And what is God going to do? He is going to comfort his people. He's going to give them what they need to walk through this trouble. He's going to give Nehemiah the opportunity. He's going to give Nehemiah the direction, the courage, and the determination he needs to lead God's people, to encourage and revive God's people, and ultimately to bring glory to the name of God. So here in the opening line, we see this name Nehemiah, and it means Yahweh comforts, and that's what the entire book is about. Yahweh comforting his people, giving them what they need as they walk through trouble. Now with that in mind, please hear me. Today, you know, is the start of a new year. And I would love to tell you that there is going to be no trouble this upcoming year. I would love to tell you there's going to be no drama. There's going to be no gossip. There's going to be no slander. There's going to be no division. There's going to be no trouble whatsoever on a personal level, on a family level, on a church level, on a nation level. No problems. <laughs> but I cannot tell you that. I will not tell you that. I will not give you that false hope. Like Nehemiah and the people of God, like Nehemiah is about to face this trouble, 2023 is going to have its trouble in it. It's unavoidable. We live in a sinful and broken world. Trouble is going to happen. I used to have, I had a friend in California, he had two teenage daughters at the time, and he said to me, Almost every single, I every single time I saw him, John, I just want to live a drama-free life, <laughs> a trouble-free life. And we both knew every time he said that, 
We both knew that that was not going to happen this side of heaven. We both knew that. Job says in Job chapter 14, verse 1, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of? Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. So Nehemiah is about to face trouble, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news. It's not all going to be trouble, but we will face trouble this year. But, like, but if we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, like Nehemiah is able to go to God through prayer and receive the comfort he needs, the direction, the power, the courage he needs, if you and I trust in Jesus Christ, you and I can go to the God of comfort. We can look to him in prayer. And despite all the trouble we have faced, are facing, and will face, what's God going to do? He's going to provide the comfort we need, the direction, the strength, the wisdom to overcome and walk through every single trial with victory. Amen? Amen. Now with that, look for a moment just at the last line of Nehemiah chapter 1. We're talking about the speaker. It's Nehemiah. What was his job? Look at the last line of Nehemiah chapter 1. For I was the king's cupbearer. At this point in time, when this is written, or after this is written, when Nehemiah is speaking of, the nation of Israel was under the control of the Persian Empire. Every, all of the nation of Israel and all the surrounding region was under the control of a pagan kingdom, and Artaxerxes I was the king at this time. And Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer. And many of you know this. What does it mean to be the king's cupbearer? It means you get to drink everything before the king drinks it to make sure it's not poisoned. And that may f sound like a horrible job, like a low-end job, but actually, at this point in time, it was considered a very high-end, very powerful position to be in. Why? Trust. With every drink that the cupbearer took, he was essentially risking his life for the king. And that developed a trust between a cupbearer and the king. And that trust between the cupbearer and the king meant power for the cupbearer. It meant influence for the cupbearer. In fact, if you study up on Persian Empire history, you see that many of the cupbearers are head magistrates of state or governors trusted, deeply trusted by the king. Why? Because they're constantly risking their life for the king. So Nehemiah, he's in a position of influence. He's in a position of power. And I want you to see something here. I want you to see God's perfect placement. God's perfect placement. As we walk through this book, we're going to see that Nehemiah wasn't the cupbearer because of luck. He wasn't the cupbearer because of skill or accident. He was the cupbearer of the king because that's exactly where God placed him. Placed him in that perfect position to serve God. Placed him in that perfect position to serve the people of God. It's so weird that a Jew who is in exile is a cupbearer to the king who's totally pagan and wants nothing to do with the God of Israel. Who put him there? God put him there. Perfect placement of God for the trouble that's about to come. 
Perfect placement to serve God and honor him. Perfect placement to serve God's people. And this is the way God works with all of those who trust in him, right? He perfectly places every single one of us. Think of Esther. Esther was perfectly placed, right? To be the queen at a time when Haman would try to destroy the people of Israel. Esther, perfectly placed by God to serve God and serve his people. Think of Daniel, perfectly placed by God in the king's court of Babylon to influence the kings and spread the good news of a God who's more powerful than any other God. Think about Moses, Aaron, every single disciple, all perfectly placed by God, gifted by God, skilled by God for the trouble that's going to ensue to serve God and serve his people, just like Nehemiah. And like Nehemiah is perfectly placed not by luck, not by happenstance maybe, not by skill, you and I, right? We're perfectly placed by God. You and I are not here today. We don't have the jobs we have. We don't have the skills we have. We don't have the gifting of the Holy Spirit we have by accident, luck, or because of our own doing. It's all a mighty, sovereign God. Like he places Nehemiah in this perfect position to serve God and serve his people, you and I are are perfectly placed by God in the body of Christ. Perfectly placed by God in the family he wants us to be in, with the occupation he wants us to be in. So we can look to him like Nehemiah and know we're perfectly placed, it's not by accident, and we can serve God and we can serve his people. And like he accomplishes great things through Nehemiah, he can accomplish great and mighty things through us. So, so far we've talked about the speaker. Now let's look at the timing of this book, the timing. Look at verse one again, the second sentence. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. The month of Chislev is equivalent to our late November slash December, or mid-November to mid-December. That's what it's a reference to, sort of the same time period we're at right now during the year. What is the 20th year a reference to? Well, prior to Christ and prior to the establishment of the BC AD calendar, which is all centered around Christ, how did people determine the year? They determined the year by the king, how many years the king had been in charge, the current king. That's what the 20th year is a reference to. It's saying this is the 20th year of the current king. It's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. Look down at chapter 2, verse 1. It really makes this clear. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, four months later, in the 20th year of... King Artaxerxes. So back in verse 1, when it says 20th year, it's a reference to the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. Now, according to our calendar and our year system, that would be between 446 and 444 BC. What does that mean? That means the Babylonian captivity has ended. The nation of Israel, you know, throughout the Old Testament, Ending in 2 Kings and Chronicles have sinned against God. God punishes them. He disciplines them by scattering them out throughout the Babylonian Empire. Eventually, the Babylonian Empire is taken over by the Persian Empire. And then the 70 years of discipline have ended, and the people of God begin to make their way back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. 
First they make their way back, a group make their way back under Ezra, then a group makes their way back under Zerubbabel. About 50,000 Jews have made their way back from the dispersion of the Babylonian slash Persian Empire back to Israel. So many of the Jews at this time have returned to Israel, specifically Jerusalem, but there are many like Nehemiah who have yet to return to the land. There's a concentration back in Israel, but many are still spread out like Nehemiah. So that's the time period we're in. People of God have started to return, but not all of them have returned to the nation of Israel. So that's the timing. Now let's look at the location. Look at the last phrase of verse one. As I was in Susa, the citadel. Susa was the capital of the Persian Empire, and it was also, this will become important later on, it was also the location of King Artaxerxes' winter palace. Susa was sort of like King Artaxerxes' Florida, is where he snow, he was a snowbird for the winter, which we all wish we were right now. So it's a location of the capital, he's snowbirding it in his Florida in Susa, and they're there right now. So that is the speaker time and location. Now let's look at the problem. Look at verse two. Han and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, all those who had returned and survived. How are they doing? And considering Jerusalem, the city of God. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, just for a moment before we get into the problem per se, note what Nehemiah did in those verses. What did Nehemiah do? It just sort of stood out to me this week. He asked how the Jews were, he asked how the city of God was doing. And that to me stood out because Nehemiah holds one of the most important positions within the Persian Empire. He's a cupbearer of the king. He has the trust of the king. He's up there. He's also snowbirding it in the winter palace with the king in Susa. He's hundreds of miles away from this situation. Hundreds of miles of these, away from these people. You could say he's sort of living the dream. But it just, it just stood out to me that he asked how the people of God and how the city of God are doing. I just love that. You know, it's so easy to become self-focused, self-consumed, to be all about what's happening around me, I. But here we see that Nehemiah has a care for God's people, has a care for God's city that's hundreds of miles away. Don't you love it when a person cares enough to ask? Isn't it such a joy when you're the person God moves in to ask and see how another person is doing? I just love that about Nehemiah. And we're gonna see that this care for God's people and this care for the city of God is even greater, even greater. It's going to become more evident as we move through the text. Now look, look again at verse 2. Let's focus in on the problem. It says the people, excuse me, the verse 3. The people are in great trouble and shame. Why? 
because as verse 3 says, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Listen closely. In Ezra chapter 4, some of the people who had already returned to Israel, what did they start doing? They started building the temple and the wall. And were they opposed? Absolutely. Ezra chapter 4, the construction of the wall completely stops. Why? Because various political officials write these slanderous letters to King Artaxerxes I and convince him to stop the construction, convince them to give them the power to forcibly stop the people of God from building the wall around the city. That's Ezra chapter 4, and up to this point, the wall hasn't been built. Nehemiah is hearing of it, and he's taking it to heart. And that's a big problem, because in this day and age, a city without a wall is like a nation without an army. It means no protection from the enemies around you. That's why it says they're in great trouble. It also says they're in shame. Why in the world would the people of God be full of shame for the walls of Jerusalem being broken down and its gates burned with fire? They would be full of shame because that would be one thing that the nations point to and say, hey, this Jerusalem where your temple's at, this Jerusalem, the city of God, look at it. I mean, if he was that great... Wouldn't it be stellar? Wouldn't it be an amazing city? Wouldn't it speak to the glory of God? But no, at this point in time, it's just a point of mockery. Look how weak your God is. Look how much your God cares about you. So the people are in trouble. They're trouble because they're vulnerable to enemies' attack. They're full of shame because something that's supposed to speak of the glory of God is being used to shame God, is being used to defame his glory. And that's not what the people of Israel want. They're like you and me. They want God to be magnified in every way. Amen. So we've seen the speaker, the time, place, and problem. Now let's look at Nehemiah's response. Look at verse 4. As I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response, I'm going to say, is threefold. First, Nehemiah weeps and mourns. And this is a simple fact. We weep and mourn about what we care about, right? If we care deeply for a person, we will weep and mourn when they pass sometimes for days, sometimes for years, right? If we deeply care for a person, we're going to weep and mourn when something happens to them or they pass. If we deeply care about our kids, we're going to weep and mourn if they're not following hard after God. If we care about our relationship with God, we're going to weep and mourn when we sin and that sin hinders that relationship and does not bring glory to God. We weep and mourn what we care about, about what we care about. And here, why is Nehemiah weeping? Well, as we'll see later in his prayer, he's weeping and he's mourning because he knows that all of this trouble is a result of Israel's sin that they have sinned against God. And this whole trouble about Israel being taken out 
and scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire, then Persian Empire, and then coming back, and then still facing this trouble. It's a result of their sin against God. So what does he do? In light of that sin that hinders this relationship and does not bring glory to God, he weeps and mourns over it. It breaks his heart. What's another reason we could say that Nehemiah weeps and mourns? He weeps and mourns because he cares about the people of God. They're vulnerable and experiencing trouble as a result of their sin, and he doesn't want that for the people of God. He also weeps and mourns because he loves God. He doesn't want this reproach brought upon him for the nations to point and say, how mighty is your God? So his first response to all this is very emotional. It's a weeping, it's a mourning, it's a real feeling. This real concern, deep movement over sin and the condition of God's people and the condition of God's, the people's view of God. So that's the second, or excuse me, that, that's the first response. The second fold in Nehemiah's response, Nehemiah's response is fasting. Look at the text. It says they're fasting. Many days they're mourning, and then he goes into fasting. You know, fasting is largely a non-existent practice in Christianity today, and I don't think that's a good thing. You know, Jesus, the one we're following, how did he initiate his ministry? 40 days of fasting. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus told his disciples, hey, don't fast while I'm here, fast when I leave, me being apart from you. In Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus do? He gave instruction concerning fasting for the people of God. He said, quote, when you fast. What is fasting? Fasting is a sincere demonstration of the heart. Fasting, when done biblically, is a sincere demonstration of the heart. Let me say it this way. Baptism is a what? Is a physical manifestation or demonstration of an inner reality, right? You get baptized on the outside to show everyone and declare to the world that you are saved, that your heart has been changed. Baptism is a sign, an outward sign of an inward reality. Fasting, when done biblically, is the same. It's an outward physical expression of a sincere heart. A person fast, why? Largely for three reasons, when done biblically. They fast first out of sorrow for sin, right? A person sins, they fast and pray. It's a sign of repentance. It's saying, God, I am so sorry, I can't even eat right now. All I want to do is look to you and communicate the sincere nature of my heart that I am so sorry for my sin. What's the second reason that fasting is done in the Bible? People fast because they love God, right? They say, I'm going to forsake this food or I'm going to forsake this element because I want to have this outward expression. I want to tell God on the outside exactly what I feel on the inside, that I have a sincere love for him that's more important than anything else. What's another reason that people fast? Not to lose weight. What is another reason that people fast? Intervention. 
It's to say, God, I need you. It's an outward expression of a sincere heart that says, I know I can't do anything on my own. I know that I need you more than anything as I face this trial or as I make this decision. I'm going to fast because I want to demonstrate to God the sincere nature of my heart. Lay aside all this and say, I need you. Why is Nehemiah fasting? One, as we say later in the prayer, he's fasting because of sorrow over sin. The nation of Israel has sinned against God. He says that he's sinned against God and his father has sinned against God, so he is fasting. He's doing this outward demonstration of an inward reality, a sincere heart of repentance saying, God, I am sorry. Please cleanse me, cleanse your people. Why else is he fasting? Because he wants God to intervene, right? The wall's broken down. The gates are burned with fire. God's people are vulnerable. God's being mocked. God, I want you to intervene. Physical demonstration of a sincere desire, knowing that only God is the one who can truly solve this problem, who can truly address this need. So Nehemiah's response is first weeping and mourning. Then it's fasting And then it's prayer. Look at the end of verse four. He fasts and he prays. And this last one, prayer, is really the thrust of Nehemiah's response. It is one of the primary themes throughout the whole book of Nehemiah. It is what Nehemiah does. It is his solution for every problem going to God going to God, going to God. This prayer that you see starting in verse five all the way to the end of the chapter, notice something very important about it. It's not a one-time prayer. It's not a one-and-done prayer. It's something that he prays day and night, day and night from mid-January, December to mid-March, April. Day and night, He's praying, praying, praying. Look at verse six. Some of you gave me a weird look and you said, how did you, not, how did you know that? Look at verse six. He's talking to God and in the prayer he says, let your ear be attentive and your ear open to the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you night and day. And how long does he pray night and day? Look at chapter one, or excuse me, chapter two, verse one. What month is it? In chapter 2, verse 1, it's the month of Nisan. You remember when he started this, when he heard the news and he started praying, what month was it? It was the, it was the month of Chislev. It was mid-November, December. He's praying and he's praying and he's praying. In fact, he's also weeping and mourning and fasting, as we'll see later in chapter 2, this entire time. And he's doing it all the way to the month of Nisan, which is March slash April. For four months, it's the solution to this problem, the solution to my need, is I'm gonna go to God in prayer. And that's the way the book starts and that's the way the book continues. Look at, look at Nehemiah chapter two, verse four. He go, the king asks him what's wrong. Verse four, the king said to me, what do you request? And what does he do? 
It says, so I pray to the God of heaven. He prays in light of the problem. Then when there's an open door to address the problem, he prays again. Skip over to Nehemiah chapter 4. Look at verse 4. The people of God are under attack. The people of God are being persecuted. What is this solution? Verse 4. Hear, O God, for we are despised. It's going to God in prayer. Look at verse 9. And we prayed to our God and set guard as protection against them day and night. What we're going to see throughout this book is a response from Nehemiah concerning a problem. And the primary thrust of his response is pray. I am going to pray. You turn to chapter 9, the whole thing, almost the whole thing like chapter 1 is prayer. The book of Nehemiah starts with prayer. Chapter 13 ends with prayer. The whole thing is just littered with prayer, prayer, prayer. Listen, we are going to see in this text that Nehemiah is a man of incredible courage. Absolutely stellar courage. We're going to see a man that's a tremendous leader. And we're going to see a man that's wholly devoted to God's word. Standing up for God's word despite whether or not it's unpopular with the masses outside and despite whether or not it's popular with the nation of Israel. He's going to stand firm. Just an incredible display of God bravery. And what's throughout the whole thing? Prayer. Nehemiah praying, 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 recognizing that all this bravery, all this leadership, all this courage does not come from his skill set does not come from his experience, does not come from anything else other than going to God, who is the God who comforts, who is the God who is the resource that we need to tap into every time. The only resource that can give a person victory, true, meaningful victory. Oh, there's a great quote. Scottish novelist George MacDonald said, in whatever man does without God, He must fail miserably. I love that last part. Or succeed miserably. In other words, if it's without God, you can do nothing of eternal value, nothing of true significance before God. You need God. And Nehemiah is a man who understands that. Faced with a problem, he knows exactly what he can do. Nothing without God. So he goes to God. And he prays, prays, Praise. And notice something else in verse 4. Back to chapter 1, verse 4. Notice when he prays. This was so convicting for me. He doesn't do everything he can do and then pray. He doesn't start formulating plans and then pray. He doesn't start taking action and then pray. No, 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 no. Not at all. Prayer is is not his last resort. Let me say it this way. He does not play the game how far with prayer. You guys know the game how far? How far is when you fill up your tank, your gas tank with gas, and then you see how far you can get before you have to fill it up again. I recently played that game and it was not pleasant. A few weeks ago, Kimberly and I, we got into the van And we went to Lansing, started to make our way to Lansing, and I looked down at the gas gauge, and it wasn't just close to E, 
it wasn't on E, it was actually below E. And we were only halfway. And then I looked at that little screen in the middle that tells me how many miles I have left worth of gas, and it said zero. And we played the game, how far? And it was not fun. I so wish I would have filled up at the very beginning, right? And I hope you see where I'm going with this. I mean, how often do I, how often do we, it's the last resort, see how far we can go before the next time. Let's make a bunch of plans. Let's take a bunch of action, then pray. But Nehemiah, he's, God uses him here in an amazing way. He drives him to pray first and foremost. Notice something else here. Prayer is not a supplement to Nehemiah's plan. Not only does Nehemiah not do everything he can and then pray, but he also doesn't synchronize them. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to do everything I can, and as I do, I'm going to make sure it's approved by prayer. Prayer is his plan. Prayer is his solution. For four months, he has this great need presented to him. People of God in trouble in Jerusalem, city of God totally being mocked, thus God being mocked. And what's his first response? And what is his only response? It is prayer, 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 prayer. Let me do this day and night for four months. And then when the king sees the condition that Nehemiah is in as a result of weeping, mourning, fasting, and being in this constant prayer, and there's an opportunity to there's an opportunity to address the problem. What's his first response? We read it. Prayer. Let me take this to God in prayer. I want to read something to you. This really, this really convicted me. It's by R.A. Torrey in his book, How to Pray, or How to Pray. And he said, It was a master stroke of the devil to get the church and the ministry to lay aside the mighty weapon of prayer. He, Satan, does not mind at all if the church expands her organizations and deftly contrive machinery for the conquest of the world for Christ if she will only give up praying. He, Satan, laughs softly. You can have your Sunday schools, your social organizations, your grand choirs, and even your revival efforts as long as you do not bring the power of Almighty God into them by earnest, persistent, and believing prayer. I think Nehemiah understood that, right? Nehemiah understood that without God, he can do nothing. That he must look to God. And that's exactly, exactly what he does. And you know, the more I thought about this, the more I recognized that this was not just the Nehemiah thing. No, no, no. This taking it to God in prayer first and foremost, and that being the solution, is a man of God thing, is a woman of God thing. Mo Do you remember Moses constantly interceding for God's people in prayer? Do you remember Deuteronomy chapter 9? What did Moses do? He fasted and prayed for 40 days concerning a sin of God's people, he goes to God. His solution is not himself. His solution is, I need to go to God. He is the solution. I mean, all through this Bible, you see that Daniel, what was his custom? Going to God in the morning, afternoon, and night. Praying three times a day was his custom. 
and it was so vital. He recognized it was the solution unto death, right? He was willing to pray when it might cost him his life because he recognized that's the solution. God is the solution. I need to go to him with everything all the time. Think about Paul. It constantly says in the epistles that he's praying daily for the churches. Think about the Psalms. What is the majority of the Psalms? The prayers of David, a man after God's own heart who's going to God and praying, praying, and praying. Think about Jesus. It's recorded in the Gospels, Jesus praying 25 times, alone in a crowd for days, all night. 20, look it up. And just go through the list. It's just prayer. And he's the son of God. I mean, of all the people you think wouldn't need to pray, it would have been him. But he is an example to us. His whole life and ministry is littered with, is totally full of this is the solution. Go to God. Take your petition to him. Now, Due to time, I'm not going to run through the rest of the chapter. We're going to touch on it next week. And I can't wait because there's basically five aspects of this prayer that so just leveled my pride and so encouraged me. And we're going to get into this next week. But to close out, I want to I give us three applications for this new year in light of this passage. As we face a new year in which there will be trouble, and the first one's going to sound like sort of a downer. And I just went, batteries out. Can you still hear me? Yeah. I can hardly hear myself. All right. The first application is weep and mourn. That sounds really weird, right? Weep and mourn. In light of trouble that we're going to face like the fire face, my application for you in this great new year is weep and mourn. That sounds terrible, but what did Jesus say about those who weep and mourn? He said, blessed are those who weep and mourn, for they shall be comforted. Nehemiah weeps and mourns, and what's going to happen? He's comforted. God's people are comforted. So I would encourage you today, if there's any personal sin that you're dealing with, that you have yet to confess, I would encourage you if there's sin in your family. I would encourage you. If you know I've sin in this church, I would encourage you concerning the nation to weep and mourn. See, God, I hate sin so much. I care about your people so much. I care about you and your glory so much. It makes me weep and mourn. And God, your faithful God, just like he's faithful to Nehemiah, blessed are those who weep and mourn, for they shall be comforted. Who do you want to live this year? Next application. Fast. I would encourage you today to not only weep and mourn over sin, but fast. Say, God, here's a physical demonstration. Don't tell anybody else you're fasting. All right? Just fast. Say, God, this sin in my life makes you so sorrowful that I, want, I don't want to do anything until it's addressed with you. Or you want to say, God, I love you. 
You are so good to me. Let me physically demonstrate by laying aside this and this that you are the God I will praise in 2023. You're the one. More important than anything. I would encourage you this week, pick a day, day or two, and say, I'm going to lay aside everything. I'm going to fast for the purpose of showing God I'm sorrowful for sin, for the purpose of saying, God, I love you, and for the purpose of saying, God, I need you to intervene. Many of you, as I look out, I know some of the things you're going through. I don't know them all. But we're all still going through something, most likely. And we all need a God who intervenes and comforts. And one of the ways we tell and we communicate to our great God is by saying, let me physically demonstrate that I'm pushing everything aside and looking to you to satisfy, to bring this need, this comfort that I so long for. Last application for this year, and this you're going to hear this every week for the next 13 weeks, is pray, 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 pray. Pray with your family. Pray alone. Pray with your church. Let me say this way. Don't you want FBC to be a church that's full of victory? Yes. Amen. Don't you want FBC to be a church that shines so bright for Jesus Christ? Yes. We all want that. And the truth is, you can't do it. And I can't do it. We need God. So we need to be a church of prayer. Personally, with our families, and as a body. Today, take some time on your own to look to God. Today, take some time with your family to look to God. This Wednesday, come and pray with the people of God. Nehemiah is a man of God. And every man of God in your Bible is one that prays, that looks to God in light of everything. we got a year coming ahead of us. We don't exactly know what's in store. But if we look to God, we know there's going to be victory. Amen? Yes. Amen. So let's be a people who pray. Let's pray. Dear God, you are so good. You are so mighty. I thank you so much for how you work through Nehemiah. None of the glory goes to Nehemiah. It all goes to you. You work through him to do everything in this book that we're looking into right now. And I thank you so much for that. You are the God who is big. You are the God who is victorious. You are God of all. And I thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who would enable us by the power of the Holy Spirit to look to you and know that you are working all things together for your glory and the good of those who we call. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.